on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, listen closely, tells you something significant. A Jewish person who believes in monotheism, there's only one God, who quotes in his morning and evening prayers the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. I say it all the time so you guys know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A monotheistic Jew who only believes in one God is telling you 700 years before Jesus comes... He's telling you the one who's given to us, this son, this child, is actually El Gibor, the mighty God. Not just Messiah, not just a prophet, not just a good teacher, not just a man. He is a human. He is like us, but it's God who's coming to bring his kingdom. That was the story. They understood it. And it's such a peculiar thing to be thinking of a Jew who believes in one God telling Jews, listen, A son, a child given to us, and it's God. It's the eternal God. They know there's only one God who's eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from eternity into eternity, you are God. There's only one eternal God, and yet this one who's the eternal one is coming as a child and as a son. That's a big part of the story. But note it, Isaiah 9. Micah 5 2 tells us, where the Messiah is coming from, Bethlehem, which is crazy. This is really one of those things that make, just makes the Bible awesome. Here's Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, right? Joseph and Mary in Nazareth. The prophecy is the Messiah is from Bethlehem, the city of David. That's Micah 5.2. Amazing. So Bethlehem, Messiah is coming from there, okay? And here's Joseph and Mary, virgin birth. She is now pregnant with Jesus, and they're in Nazareth. And then God wields the pagan leader to calling out a census so that Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem. That's where Jesus comes out. It's crazy. It's crazy. The whole story is happening, right? And it's just an amazing experience just to look through this and see what God's doing in history. He's even having a pagan, you know, oh, census. It's just a crazy thing. Here's Joseph and Mary. Now going to Bethlehem, Jesus comes out, fulfillment of prophecy. But also Micah 5.2 tells you that it's the one that is from eternity that's coming to Bethlehem. So who's coming as Messiah, guys? Just say it. God's coming as Messiah. The when of the Messiah, listen closely. Daniel chapter 2, long before Jesus comes, says there are going to be four kingdoms. Four kingdoms. And then during the time of the fourth kingdom in Daniel 2, it says that the God of heaven himself is going to establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So listen, we've got a timeline to work with, guys. A timeline, four kingdoms, and Daniel started writing in Babylon. So you just count down from Babylon, and you got the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and you got Rome. When did Jesus enter? During the time of Rome. And what was the first thing out of his lips when he leaves the wilderness? He says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They understood the story. Amazing. Daniel 2 says something you need to grab hold of, guys. Very important. Daniel 2 says, fourth kingdom, God himself is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. Never. But God says something important. Listen close. He says, it'll be a stone that becomes a great mountain that fills the entire earth. A stone that becomes a mountain. Think about it. This itty-bitty stone that is actually going to become like Camelback Mountain, but fill the whole entire earth. Think about the size there. Watch. 
What do you see so far? Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's a gradual increase of his government and as a result of his government increasing, peace also increases. You see that? And then Daniel says, stone that becomes a mountain. That's gradual. The whole idea of the kingdom of God being dropped in history to obliterate it is not biblical, brothers and sisters. It is a gradual increase of government and of peace. It is a stone that becomes a mountain. And brothers and sisters, let me offer this to you as an encouragement because I confess when I look at the world around me today, many times I say, God, how? How in the world? I was just in Philadelphia preaching this message in one of the most deplorable ugly places I've ever seen. And here I am preaching about the victory of Jesus in history and surrounding me is just nothing but death all around me. And I confess to the fact that when you look at your circumstances, you can see all but loss in front of you. But the truth of the matter is we don't walk by sight, but by what? Faith. It's the word of God that shows us what God is doing in history. And I got to tell you right now, many times in the Bible, God promised things to his people that looked all but impossible. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. Virgin births don't happen. God doesn't become a man, right? All the times God promises people victory, victory. Here you go. I'm going to deliver you out of the land of Egypt. Go. And they go and there's a big sea in front of them. Great. Dead. Moses. He brought us out here to kill us. The enemies of God climbing up behind them. They're stuck on this beach like ants. So many of them just were dead. And Moses basically says, shut up. Watch what God's going to do. And God parts the Red Sea. They escape and he destroys the enemies. God has always done the impossible because he wants to get the glory for it. And the amazing thing to think through here is that when you look at the scriptures, it is a gradual increase. That's God's pattern. The church has in history, 2,000 years of history, we've had moments of great triumph and we've had moments of great despair. There's been moments of the church dying and rising again, dying and rising again, dying and rising again. That has been God's pattern in history. It has been a gradual increase. Just know that God does very big things with very small stones. Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 9, amazingly, I won't do it all right now, tells you the when of the Messiah. He's coming before the second temple's destroyed. He's going to die before it happens, and that happened, amazingly. Now, look closely. What's going to happen? Psalm 22 tells you the suffering of the Messiah. What's it say? That they would pierce his hands and his feet. His heart would be like wax melted within him, Psalm 22 says. They would be like dogs wagging their heads at him. They're going to mock the Messiah, it teaches us. They're going to uh, cast lots for his clothing. That's a thousand years before Jesus. That's just got to trip you out. I did not just read to you a New Testament book. That's from Psalm 22. So you have the what's going to take place. Isaiah 53, he's going to be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Listen, it says that he would be counted among the rebels. And then he would justify the many as he would bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53 tells you that the Messiah was going to die and that he would see his offspring, that he would prolong his days after he dies. You've got death and resurrection in Isaiah 53. It's amazing. But something else. Listen, Isaiah 2 tells us that in the last days, 
God himself was going to have a kingdom that be this great mountain where all the nations, listen, would stream up to it. So you can imagine now this vision of mountain and all the nations surrounding the mountain. Now all these nations, they're coming up to it. And I'll never forget when Luke first said it to me. I'd missed it so many times. He was doing a study in Isaiah when we first started Apology at Church. Amazingly, it just, it just changed my whole perspective. Isaiah 2 says the nations are going to stream up to the mountain of God. And the crazy thing about water, guys, if you didn't know this, is it doesn't go up. Water flows what? Down. It, goes, it gets pulled down. So what is going on where you have in this vision of the kingdom of God because of Messiah, you have a vision of nations going up a mountain. Up. How do they get up? Unless they're drawn. God's going to draw the nations. They understood that. But Psalm 110.1, learn to love that verse because the apostles did. The most quoted verse in our New Testament from the Old Testament needs to be something we listen to. If you've got all these apostles and they're referring to Psalm 110.1 a lot, they're drawing from it, they're pointing to it. Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Did you know that? Now, if it was important to them, it needs to be important to us. And Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And the New Testament, listen, they're just saying it. That's Jesus. He's the one that's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's the one who's making God's enemies his footstool. And listen, they refer to that as a current thing. Not, we're waiting for it to happen. They refer to it as, that's what's up now. Now. Psalm 110.1. Now quickly, because you've already heard a lot of this. I won't do what I did in Philadelphia. But go to Matthew quickly. And get Isaiah 9 ready. The Gospel according to Matthew Remember I told you the symphony of history to tell the whole story is not just about private individual salvation, but it is about nations coming to God, the Messiah being glorified, God bringing this salvation to the ends of the earth. Matthew opens up and he's already telling you part of the symphony. When he opens up, he gives you the genealogy of Jesus, which we all tend to ignore. It's critically important that it's there because listen... If Matthew is going to convince us that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and the King, what does he have to do? He has to show us that Jesus has the royal right to the throne, that he can actually be that Davidic King who actually brings salvation to the ends of the earth. And what? Lo and behold, Matthew opens up. You see the genealogies. You go, all right, that's Jesus' story. He's got a right to the throne. And then Matthew continues the story. He starts quoting, watch, from Isaiah. Significant moment. Don't lose it. Not only does he tell you the genealogy, but then he says, what? Oh, in Isaiah 7, virgin birth. So watch this. You need to know, we need to know as brothers and sisters, that Matthew is thinking in Isaiah. He's thinking in it. It's in his mind, Isaiah. He knows the book. He's not just proof texting. He knows the story. Isaiah 2 is there. Nations coming up. Isaiah 9 is there. God's coming. Increase of his government and peace. Isaiah 7, virgin birth. He knows the story. And he points to Jesus is that fulfillment. Then then you get, amazingly, in Matthew chapter 2, you can move through with your eyes here. And who are the first people that show up to Jesus? 
Who are the ones that show up that are coming to him as king? Who is it? Pagans, Gentiles. It's amazing. Listen, it's crazy. This has got to blow us away. The story in the Old Testament was Messiah was going to bring the nations, right? Not just Jews, but Gentiles. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And now Matthew opens up. He's like, okay, he's a Davidic king. He gets that. Virgin birth, Isaiah 7. And then you have now God telling us a story that the first people to show up were pagans. They're the ones looking for the king to worship him. God is wielding the stars so that pagans are coming to see the king. Finally here. That's the story. There's the symphony. Now you move further into two. And now you have Jesus being described as that really the perfect Israelite is starting to happen out of Egypt. I called my son. Now God is now taking a passage about Israel. He's applying it to Jesus. Now here we go. Chapter three. John the Baptist. A beast. A godly troublemaker. A godly troublemaker. He comes in as promised. The last book of our Old Testaments. Our Old Testaments tells us that Elijah was going to come first. And what? That there was going to be repentance and judgment and purification. And here's John the Baptist that Jesus says, was that Elijah who called him to repentance? And what are the first things out of his mouth, brothers and sisters? You've got to see it with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 3. Here we go. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Watch. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guys, what was not being said by them? Obviously. Hey, y'all want every day to be a Friday? Well, what was not being said to them? Who would like their best life now? Anybody here? John the Baptist comes in. I'm, I'm doing this on purpose. That message is ridiculous. And the modern evangelicalism, not the church of God, but the idea of modern evangelicalism is an amazing thing. We don't tell the message that they told John did not come in with the story that we often start with. He comes in and what's on his lips is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the story for them. Kingdom meant salvation, but it was a broader story than just my personal salvation. This is why John is saying it first. He doesn't come in saying, who would like to invite this Messiah into their hearts? He comes in saying, turn from your sin The kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are synonymous phrases. Watch. Dangerous thing. When we see kingdom of heaven and we think that it means heaven one day, we are so, so wrong. Matthew is being very cautious. He's a Jew. He's being very cautious to Jewish sensitivities and saying kingdom of heaven, replacing the name of God with heaven, which is a common thing for them to do. And so what he's really saying is this. Repent, for the rule of God is at hand. Kingdom means rule. We tend to go, this is kingdom. Like, Where's the stuff? Where's the armies? Where's the the army in the buildings? Where's the legislature for the kingdom of Jesus? Is that going to be set up one day? Like, where's the physical throne of Jesus? Where am I going to be able to touch that one day? We think of kingdom in these terms, but kingdom just meant rule. The rule of God is at hand. So John comes in, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he starts declaring judgment on those leaders, saying the axe is already laid at the root. Repent, which, by the way, is what the last book of our Old Testament says is going to happen. Judgment with the Elijah. And then Jesus now, 
Chapter 4, we've done it together. The wilderness, Jesus goes in, defeats Satan in the wilderness. But here we go. I told you to have Isaiah 9 ready, and here's why. Satan's temptation was not, let me say it again, was not just something thrown out there to Jesus. I couldn't get Jesus with the bread. I couldn't get Jesus with the testing God. So how about this? Satan's final testing is to give Jesus exactly what he came for. So watch the story. Old Testament, the mountain of God, the nations streaming up. And now Satan goes, because he knows his Bible better than most of us. He says, all right, Jesus. And he brings him to a great and high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, Jesus, I'll give him to you. Worship me. So he tells Jesus, I'll give you all the nations. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is worship me. I'll give you what you came for. It's ultimately what Satan is doing. Great mountain takes Jesus up to. And he shows him all the kingdoms. He says, I'll give them to you. And Jesus defeats him and says, you should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Satan is now defeated in the wilderness. Grab it. Isaiah 2 says, mountain, nations. Satan takes him up, shows him to him, says, there they are. I'll give them to you. Worship me. And Jesus defeats Satan using the word of God, by the way, very important. And now watch. Here we go. Matthew 4. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Admit something. I will grant it right now and confess to it. I read that for so many years and I was like, I ain't got a clue what it means. Sounds nice. Very poetic. But I don't even know what it means. You know what's amazing? Is you've got the first words out of John's lips in Matthew. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you've got Jesus now defeating Satan after being offered the nations and the kingdoms. And guess what? Now you move here. And guess what? Matthew 4. Matthew now quotes Isaiah 9. This passage here is the beginning of Isaiah 9. What was Isaiah 9, 6? El Gibor, the Messiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end, that all these people are going to come and serve him. That's the story. And look what Jesus says. Here we go. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And further 23, look what he says here. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, here we go, out of the lips of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom. When it's up here, look, it's right there. So, gospel of the kingdom. You might have come in and maybe even assumed, well, that's just the title of the message, right? You got to have cool titles for messages, right? So maybe that's, that's just the title of the, of the message, right? That's just a unique title. The, the reason that the message is called that is because that's what Jesus was proclaiming. 
It's a whole story. It's not just a piece of a story. It's a whole story. It's the good news of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, his rule and history, which meant salvation, forgiveness. Listen closely, and you get everything I'm saying right now, guys. Listen. If we don't have the good news of the kingdom, if we don't have an understanding of what that means, then we don't even really understand how the personal salvation fits into the story. It's not personal salvation and also one day a kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Messiah, which actually has within it the salvation that we're all looking for. Now listen closely. Here's where we're going to finally bring this together. Matthew 28. Matthew ends now with all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations. What was the story, guys? All the nations were coming to God. What was the story? He'd be given a kingdom that would never be destroyed. What was the story? Salvation, forgiveness to the ends of the earth. The glory of God, the Bible says, is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That means everything's getting wet, brothers and sisters. Everything. Matthew 28. Which direction did Jesus go? I need you all to say, it's very important. Where'd he go? He went up. Daniel 7, in his vision, what does Daniel see in the vision? One like the Son of of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, and it says that he came where? Up to the Ancient of Days, and he was given a kingdom, dominion, and glory that all peoples, tribes, everyone's coming to this Messiah. And I love the story. It's a whole story. It's a symphony. Here's Jesus now defeating death, walking among his people. He's bringing salvation. And then he ascends where he is seated and given that kingdom. We are not waiting for the kingdom of God to get into history, brothers and sisters. His kingdom is here. It is now. He is ruling and he is reigning now. And where history is going is this way. Every enemy under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this is the pattern of history. Jesus reigns putting his enemies under his feet. And after every enemy is under his feet, the last one is death. And that's when Jesus takes the kingdom and he gives it to the Father. He's not coming to bring it. And why is this so important? Brothers and sisters, if we believe that Jesus is not reigning now, if we believe that Jesus actually brings his kingdom later, then it absolutely guts the story. And it makes us as a church entirely and utterly impotence. We need to believe like the church has believed for 2,000 years that Jesus is reigning now and all people, nations, tribes, languages are to come to him and, and to be ruled over by him in salvation. We need to believe like the church has for 2,000 years that the goal is to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and bring every nation in subjection to Jesus. We need to believe what the early church believed and what we believe for 2,000 years, and particularly the reformers and the Puritans, the Scottish Covenanters, the Huguenots, all those guys. We need to believe what they believed, and that's this. There's no God but God and no king but Christ. And that Jesus has authority over everything. That Jesus, in fact, has authority over our civil government. That Jesus has authority over the abortion mill. That Jesus has authority over my life. And guess what, Mr. Atheist? Yours too. You see, when Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, I have to ask us a question as Christians. Do we even believe that? Many of us are very happy to let Jesus be king over Neverland. But not here.
If you look at the reformers, that was really amazing. I was at the conference this week, and I got to hear message after message after message on the great cloud of witnesses that are more current than the ones that are referred to in Hebrews. The great cloud of witnesses like George Whitfield, like Jonathan Edwards, the great cloud of witnesses of brothers and sisters in Christ before us who lived godly, risky lives as risky troublemakers for their generation. I'm going to borrow this from my friend, Douglas Wilson. He said something I want you to hear. He says that it's our pattern, and what people typically do as humans is this. We honor our dead troublemakers and our living conformists. Right? We love it, don't we? We look at like the monuments. We're like, oh man, Knox and Zwingli and Luther and all these guys, like amazing heroes, right? Troublemakers. Absolutely turning everything upside down. Luther, troublemaker. Whitfield, troublemaker. We say Whitfield would preach out and there'd be like 30,000 people. Benjamin Franklin, not a Christian, but loved the Christian worldview, was buddies with Whitfield. He's talking about how he'd always go to see Whitfield preach. And Whitfield was out and he'd preach to 30,000 people at once with no amplification. He could hear his voice for a mile. That's the truth. Did you know that about Whitfield? The first great awakening turned the whole world upside down with the gospel. Whole cities turned to Christ. No joke. Whole cities come and shut the bars the next day, the brothels and everything else, because they turned to Christ. That really happened. It wasn't even long ago. We go, oh, Whitfield, amazing. He'd go out and he'd preach the gospel in a field and thousands, tens of thousands of Whitfield. And we go, oh, let's praise God. Awesome. He was a great teacher. Do you know why he was there? He got ran out of the church. Whitfield was in the fields because the church said, you're dangerous. You're too harsh. You're too rough-edged. We don't want you in the churches preaching what you're preaching. Get out. And so Whitfield goes, fine. He goes out in the field, starts preaching. And then everyone comes. All these guys, godly troublemakers. We think about our history. We're like troublemaker. We love our troublemakers. John the Baptist is awesome. We're like, man, he's crazy. Locust, honey, crazy, wearing f- crazy clothes. Amazing. Looks like a Halloween costume. We're like, that was weird, but awesome. I love John the Baptist. The only reason we love John the Baptist is because he's safe back there. I wonder oftentimes in the modern context if we would do the same to our heroes that the people in their day did to them. We erect monuments to these men. And to these women who gave their lives for the cause of the gospel, we're like, man, if we could just have Whitfield, if we could just have Edwards back again. Do you know what Edwards' sermon was? We all know it, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That was Edwards' second great awakening. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Do you know, have you read that sermon? Have you read it? Go read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It'll kick your teeth in. He said, God's arrow is drawn back and it is waiting to be drenched with your blood. And he called harsh to repentance and faith in Christ. Be joined to Christ and taught you must be born again. And they preached it faithfully. And guess what? They got a lot of trouble for it. It stirred a lot of people up. And guess what? We love our troublemakers. We love our godly troublemakers. And we love our living conformists. If God, I would to God that he would raise up even in this congregation, a congregation full of godly troublemakers, 
godly troublemakers that lay their lives down for the sake of others that tell the whole story. Listen, we look at our heritage in America and think about something. The Puritans, dominant force over in America. The early church, I'd say in America, believes something significant. Listen, they believe the story that I'm telling you. They believe that Jesus was not just about bringing personal salvation, but he was the king, and we're bringing that kingdom to the ends of the earth. We need to bring this whole nation under Christ's feet. The Puritans. I'll use the word. They were post-millennial. Don't worry about that right now, except to say this. They believe what I'm telling you, that Christ was king, and he had all the crown rights. Everyone needed to come to him. That's what they believed. And it did something, didn't it? Didn't it mean something? Early on, didn't it transform cultures? Didn't it mean something for them? Amen. And yes, it did. Listen, when we believe that Jesus doesn't have all authority and that he's not truly reigning now, it affects all the world around us. Listen, our culture around us goes to hell in a handbasket. Ready? Acknowledging the sovereignty of God. But the means of their going to hell in a handbasket is us. It's us. It's us not fighting. It's us not loving them enough to lay our lives down for them. It's us not dying daily. It's us not sacrificing, loving them, and actually caring that they're plunging into darkness. And when you have the good news of the kingdom, you understand that this story is bigger than me. The story is the rule of Christ in history, and this gospel must go into every single area, every dark place, every corner, all the ugly places. Jesus, his message of his kingship and rule and salvation needs to go there. Think again about our godly troublemakers quickly. One last one. Athanasius. Man, I love Athanasius. Do you know who Athanasius is? You've got to read about Athanasius. Athanasius, for Christians, we're like, man, the Athanasian Creed. Right, we have creeds, and do you know this in church history? We have creeds like the Nicene Creed, that's good. The Athanasian Creed, like that's awesome. Do you know what kind of trouble went into those creeds? Do you know? You got heretics rising up, and the whole church is in struggle because heretics are coming in and distorting the message of who Jesus is. The church has to rally around the scriptures and together fight these heretics and go, okay, now let's make a creed and let's refute that position. Good. Arianism, done. And then all of a sudden, Athanasius, we go to the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius, listen, if you look him up, Athanasius had a saying that went with him. That's kind of neat. It was Athanasius contra mundum. They're like, what is that? Athanasius against the world. He was called Athanasius against the world, Athanasius contra mundum, because at the time, the emperor and all the priests were against him. What was he defending? The Trinity. Kind of an important doctrine. Like it's about God and who he really is. And at the time, there was corruption that crept in and caused Athanasius basically to stand alone. And he's the only one fighting. And so Athanasius contramundum. And we go, Athanasius, the bomb, amazing. He's a troublemaker. He's a troublemaker. We have to ask the question, does Jesus have all authority? Do we understand it's the good news of a kingdom? Do we even understand what that means of how it is good news of a kingdom? It's good news that God has kept his promises, that he's exalted the Savior, that Christ is seated, and he's bringing the nations. We need to preach that Jesus has all authority in every area of life, that he's the true king. He's the true king. Again, listen. This came out of the Reformation, the time of the Reformation. Listen closely. This is what they said. There's no God but God. There's no king but Christ. There's no king but Christ. There's no king but Christ. 
They spoke to the, to the authorities of the day and they said, you must submit to Christ. You've got to turn to Him. He has all authority, not you. What was the early church chastised for? Listen closely. Acts chapter 17, verse 7. It says this. It says this. They say there's another King Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The early church is being brought up on charges. Brought up on charges. And what are the charges? They're saying there's another King Jesus. Because they understand it's the good news of a kingdom, guys. I have to ask a quick question. Would we ever get accused of that today in our culture? As Christians in our culture, do we herald the message of the kingdom of Christ and his salvation in such a way that we express even to the authorities around us that we say we'll be good citizens, we'll be obedient, we're not going to foment revolution, but Jesus is king over you. He's in charge and he's actually over you. Would we ever be accused today as American Christians in our culture, would we be accused of saying that Jesus has authority over you, over you, and his word counts? Because the early church did. John the Baptist spoke to the reigning leader of his day in his moment, and he told Herod, who was part of the civil state system, he said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wives. He actually brought the law of God to the civil magistrate. How do you like them apples? Don't talk to the civil government in that way. He says, yeah, it's not lawful for you to have that, right? It's against God's law. Jesus condemned the Pharisees. Paul in Acts condemns the false prophets and the religious leaders. The highest level of philosophical debate, Paul in Athens. Can you imagine Marzell? He's standing there. He's speaking now to pagans in the highest level of philosophical debate. And he says to them, God overlooked these things in the past, but now God commands men everywhere to repent. He has raised Jesus up and appointed him, and he has a day where he's going to judge. God commands you to repent. Do we preach the gospel like that today? And we ask the question, why are we so impotent as a church today? Here's why. Are we even preaching the gospel? Are we preaching the good news of the kingdom in the way that they did? Christ is the ruler. He has all authority. He commands you to repent. That's how they preached it. And we say, we can't do that today. That would cause all kinds of trouble. I don't believe that God has ever really done anything of significance in history with a living conformist. It's always been the troublemakers. Note the word before it. Godly. There is a difference between being a prophet and a prick. Right? Don't confuse the two. They are very different. Amen? A prophet does it for the glory of God. Not for themselves. Not for their own image. Not for who they are to be promoted. A prophet does it willing to die and be erased from history for the glory of God. The other side does it for themselves. They do it so that they look good. They do it to win arguments. They do it because they want the spotlight. There's a difference. A godly troublemaker is content to be forgotten. Are you? Three things and we're done. Quickly. One, you may want to cut your cake in a different way. But there are three things that I believe need to be handled in our own lives before this ever makes any sense to us or before we ever do anything of significance. Three things. What's the problem? We've gutted the story of its major parts. 
but here we go. Number one, how come we're so impotent today? Again, this is a major problem. We're not telling the story the way they did. But personally, I believe that the reason many of us don't impact the world around us in the way that we are called to is very simple. We have not even died yet. Luke 14, Jesus preaching before masses of people. He's preaching before all these people. He's got a major church situation going on. Jesus, you could have been the first mega church pastor. All the people in front of you, you got your own mega church, Jesus. I bet you the disciples were like flipping out. Think about it, how awesome. Apology church. Praise God. Look what we're doing now. Look what God's doing here in this church. But watch this. If you came in here on a Sunday, right? Next Sunday you come in and all of a sudden you notice every single seat is full. And there's a line going out the door and down the street. People kind of, you'd be like, yeah, woo, we're growing as a church. Praise God. Glory. Right? You'd be like flipping out. And you'd be like, I hope Jeff doesn't do something today. (laughs) Right? What do we do? Think about it honestly. When you have this many people in a context, you'd be like, let's do what we can to keep them. And I say it, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. Today in our culture, what do we do? We say, we get all these people in front of us, let's not do anything to step on their toes. Let's give them chocolate milk and cookies and cotton candy. So that they stay or come back next week. That's what we do. And if you think I'm joking, I'm not joking. That is done in churches today. We're opening a church. First thing we do, let's focus on the coffee bar on the inside. Make sure we have Starbucks. Whatever we can to keep Jesus turns him in Luke 14. Masses of people coming to him. And he turns and all the apostles. It's awesome. Finally, yes, we're good. And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, it is not hate, father, mother, sister, brother. He's listing them. And he says, and your own life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. He's saying to them this. Ready? If you love anybody in comparison to me more, then don't come. If you love your life in comparison to me more, don't come. Come to die or don't come at all. That was the message that Jesus brought to people. You come to die and rise again. You come and you give everything up and you follow me. You come trust in me. I'll give you eternal life. Believe in me, eternal life, but come and die. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Don't ever be an almost Christian. The worst place to ever be is almost Christian. Listen to that. Jesus just turned them away. He just said, go. We think if I could just get them in the door a bit and try Jesus out, maybe that's good. It's never good to almost be Christian. And Jesus called people to come and die. And I think what's wrong with us today, in many ways, there are lots of answers to this. It's very simple this. We are too afraid to die or we haven't died yet. You see, we look at guys in the history, we say, how did this guy, how did, is it, uh, how did this reformer, who is preaching to his generation and calling the king and the queen to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus, how did they have so much courage? I heard the story of a guy, reformer, and you don't even know who he is. You never heard of him. I'm sure of it. He preached the gospel so faithfully his whole life. He's insignificant himself, but what he did was amazing, and it brought the gospel so far in his day. He's on his way to go to the stake to be burned for preaching the gospel in his day. Godly troublemaker. And on the way, 
to the stake. His six-year-old boy and his wife were there. And he's on the way and he stopped to talk to his six-year-old son. How many of us would stop and have a conversation with our six-year-old before we're about to die for the gospel? And he told his son, all he said, he said, you, you trust in Christ. You turn to him. You turn, you flee all wickedness. You trust in Christ. And I pray God uses your life for his kingdom and all the rest. And then he goes and he gets burned at the stake. And he's on fire. And he's not dead yet until they took an axe and they swung it into his face on the stake. And you ask the question, how does this man who could have just, with his six-year-old boy there, just said, okay, I repent. I, I won't do it. I'll calm down. How many of us would do that with my son, six years old, sitting there? How many of us would say, okay, look, this guy out of here quick. (laughs) Maybe I'll stop and take breath. And maybe I'll think about what I'm doing. He passes his son on the way and says, you trust in Christ. You turn to him. You don't give up. You lay your life down for Christ. He goes to be burned. He asks the question, how does someone do something? They're nuts. They're crazy. How do you do something like that? Here's the only way it happens. The only people that go to their deaths like that are people who have already died. It's the only way it happens. You have to lay your life down for the sake of others. That's the call of the gospel. You come trust in Christ, but know this. You're coming to die and rise again. You're coming to leave an old self at that cross. Second point, we are man Pleasers. Paul says in Galatians 1, listen closely, when he confronts Galatian, the Galatian heresy, he says this, ready? He says, do I seek to please men or God? If I still seek to please men, I would not be the slave of Jesus. Our problem many times as Christians is that we love the applause of others. We want so badly for people to like us. And listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting fellowship and intimacy with others. But if it's at the expense of truth, it's sin. And Paul is saying this, I can't, I can't, I can't seek your pleasure in me and still be the slave of Jesus. I got to tell you the truth, no matter what the cost, I've made a decision to be the slave of Jesus and not the slave of you. We're man pleasers. We love to please men over God all the time. And until we die to that, we're never going to be effective as Christians in our culture. And it's just sin. It's just sin. Call it what it is. I got to say something here. It's very important. I just don't want to forget to say it to you. I don't want to forget. It's very important. You have to be willing to fight your own flesh and your own mind when you go out into the world to, to reach people for Christ. It's hard. It's not hard because God's not mighty. It's hard because of our own sin. I confess before you all how many times I go out to preach the gospel and I have to repent of my own indifference. I have to repent of my lack of love for the lost. I have to repent of it. I have to ask God, God, give me help. I don't love these people. I don't. I don't love these people. That's why I don't want to go, because I don't really care. I don't care about them out there. I don't care about them at the abortion. I don't care about them at the temple. I want to stay home. I want to do my own thing. And I got to tell you, you have to fight your flesh. You have to die to self, and you have to confess to God, God, I don't love you or them enough to even do this. Lord, I don't like being called names out there. I don't like people cussing me out. I don't like people making fun of me. I don't like it. And you have to die. You have to turn from that. You have to fight those fleshly impulses to just be loved by everybody. 
And our problem is we are so in love with comforts, we have forgotten to love others. Last point. We don't understand the true gift of suffering for Christ. I want to show it to you when we're done. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Go there quickly. Acts 5. Look at the scenario. It trips me out. I love the story, so let me just tell it to you for a second quickly as you look later at Acts 5, the whole story. Here's the apostles preaching in the streets. and watch. Look, look at this. Uh, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem up with your teaching. You, listen, have filled Jerusalem up with your teaching. How do you do that? You don't do that through simple friendship evangelism, right? You're not doing that at your, you're not filling Jerusalem up at your barbecue at your house. How are they filling Jerusalem up? They were out in the streets, in the marketplaces, proclaiming the gospel to them. And there these guys are saying, look, we told you, guys, we told you to stop preaching in this name. And you are just filling this city up with your teaching. You're filling up. And I love this. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, there it is. Did you get it? You killed him. God raised him up. He is the chief leader and savior. Are you catching it? The good news of the kingdom was not simple about private salvation. It was there, forgiveness, salvation. It's that God raised him up and he is now seated and exalted. He's the leader. He's the savior. That's the whole story. And they're telling it. They didn't say, hey guys, we just want Jesus to be Lord between our ears. They said, you killed Jesus. God has exalted him. He's the savior. He's the chief ruler. And i got to obey God rather than men. And look what happens. They end up in the passage. Verse 40. I love it. They say, don't do it. And then the apostles go back out. They're doing it again. They bring me in. Do we say stop doing this? And then they do this. It says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So watch this. They beat them. They're hot and bloody and cut and in pain. And they say this, go, stop teaching in this name. Stop. Admit it. What would you and I do? I'll confess. I think, knowing myself, I think what I would do after being beaten like that and going through all this for the gospel, I think I might go home to candy to lick my wounds. I, th I think I would probably go home to say, all right, I did my part. I'm going to take a little break. I'll pause for a little bit. I just, I just took a beating. Look, let some time, give us some time to heal a little bit, right? Put some ointment or something. Like, cool, I'm gonna, I want to take a break. But it says what? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. The apostles understood you must serve God rather than men. The apostles understood you're coming to die and rise again. The apostles understood that Jesus is the chief ruler and the Savior, and God has raised him up. And they understood that it was an honor to suffer for Jesus. He bought me out of darkness. He saved me. He is the ruler. He's the Savior. He loves me. And it's worth all of me to lay my life down and suffer for the cause of the gospel. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer. What do you love? This is the so what. What do you love? I'm going to ask you a question that was asked this week, and I want, I want you to hear it because it hit me hard. What do you love? If you could have anything... You could have anything you wanted. Think about it right now. If, you, if, if, someone said, if, if someone said to you, I will give you the one thing that you want, whatever it is, just the one thing that you most desire, that would most please you, I'll give you the one thing right now. Ask me, I'll give it to you. The one thing that you would just want, the, the, the thing that you would just say, that's, what I, that's the biggest thing for me. I wish I had that. What is the one thing you want the most? Ready? That's your God. That's your God. And if we think as Christians with that perspective, our lives will change. Paul knew it. John knew it. Peter knew it. It's God. He's everything. He's all. Christ is everything. And suffering for the cause of the gospel is all I want in my life. This is a call. This is not just a message that you hear and you go, oh, that was pretty challenging and convicting. Wow, praise God. That's cool. This is the message where you have to have your heart checked. You have to ask yourself the question, what is God calling me to do for this good news of his kingdom in the world now? What's he calling me to do? What do I need to flee from? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to confess to God? God, I'm that man pleaser. God, I'm the one who hasn't died yet. I'm the one that cares more about my life and my stuff than you. God, it's me. You have to call out to God and ask him, God, just melt my idols, God. Take away my fear. Take away my pride. God, give me all of your power, God, so I can serve you with my life and lay my life down. God, let me be a godly troublemaker for your glory. You have to ask God. Let's pray. Father, bless God what went out for your glory. I pray, God, with all my heart, in Jesus' name, that you would use this very small huddle of believers for your glory that you would put the gospel of the kingdom on our lips, that you would let it come and thunder out of our mouths, that, God, you would allow us to have the strength to live for your glory and the vision of your kingdom in the world, your salvation to the ends of the earth. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.